0: So, let's see. So, we have, this is, I, I lost count. I tried to count. We started with Romans 8 in our series. Then we did either Romans 1, 1 or Romans 1, 1 through 7. Then we did Romans 1, uh, roughly 16 through 2, 7. Then we did, ambitiously, Romans 3 and 4, biting off a little bit more than we could chew. So, please be, uh, the purpose of these messages is, uh, probably more than anything else to enrich your personal reading of the book of Romans read Romans read Romans again pick out a verse or a phrase and just read and reread and zero in on and reread that phrase and we'll do that with a couple today but the good good preaching however good it may be is is uh, best applied in in your bed as you're lying at night considering the word of god when you're going to sleep, and when you're in distress and when you're in need. Um, and it is augmented and multiplied as you read it yourself again and again and again. So read it thoughtfully and many times over. Let's double back just a little bit. We'll start in Romans 4.20. We were talking about Abraham, and as we're about to start, um, the book of Romans has a flow a rise and fall it is like it is like a most beautiful classical symphony where you have theme several themes variation on the themes repeated phrases and concepts and we've had the we have had the the low notes with the sin of not just y'all gentiles but us jews so to speak right and and we saw God's righteousness, we saw being a bondservant, we saw all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We saw justification by faith, and then we had more sin, and then we had more sin. So in two, th- one, two, three, four, a big chunk of that has been, we're all under sin. Now, in the first big rise, Um, before a little bit more fall, and then chapter 8. Here's chapter 5, and especially in 5, 1 through 11, which we'll cover today, it is like this sweet, these sweet high notes in the flow of the book of Romans. And then there will be struggling with sin, chapter 6 and 7. And we'll just start to get into that today. We'll do 6 next week, and then the week after that you have uh, a special guest speaker. I'm not going to tell you who it is but they're going to go back and do Romans 6, uh, 15 through the end of the chapter a second time. So we can look forward to that in two weeks. Um, Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Of Abraham it is said, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, or one might say by being fully convinced, that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Remember everything uh, Josiah taught this morning. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Therefore, since we, verse 1, have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that there is nothing better in the world than having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This has been the, the routine meditation of my heart through thick and thin. I, one of my frequent struggles in life has been coming to this moment where I was supposed to do well at something and I had this overwhelming sense of failure hundreds of times, and like this, you know, rather crushing pressure of stress as I'm there before the, um, the exam that was beginning, and I realized I didn't know the answers, or I didn't know as much as I could have known, because I, I, I didn't, I, I had failed to prepare as well as I could have done, or, or where I had sinned, the same sin in which I had sinned like almost daily for years. And as I spent, in high school I spent, there, there was the same set of sins that I struggled with uh, almost daily. And, and I began to know the God of grace and to find peace with him in that, that moment after failure where, where God was present with me in my being loser. And and God was yet near me. And to know him, to know he's not there with a cattle prod, <laughs> and, and he's not there shaking his head and thinking, I'm so ashamed of you. And to know he's not muttering under his breath how disappointed he is in me. All those things are unreal things that we have experienced from uh, men and women like ourselves who likewise fail. But in that, that uh, repeated theme in my life, the, the, the musical production of my life, the repeated theme has often been failure and sin. And the, the notes playing over that, superimposed over that, have been the presence of God and the peace with God, for I came to know this gospel of grace at an early age. And approximately one billion times, I have sensed in those moments of failure, peace with God. And I think there is nothing better in life than that, to know he's here, he's good, I'm here, I'm not, Romans one through four, nice summary of that, and, and Romans five, and I'm at peace with God. He's at peace with me. It's it's the same proclamation of blessing that these shepherds, and who are shepherds? They're like it's like the lowest job. So whatever you think the lowest or most ignoble job is in our society, you know, maybe it's probably somebody who uh, doesn't get much recognition. You know, their clothes probably get dirty at work. They, they probably don't get paid very well, yet they work very hard. Uh, that's shepherds, right? And in those in the night, not in the daytime, not with crowds and accolades, there are these shepherds. And in the mind of God, in, in, in the person who God is, when God is preparing to reveal his Son, to manifest the grace of God into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Who does he tell first? He tells Zechariah, he tells Mary. And then, and then he's got these shepherds. Mm-hmm. And, and what does he say? He says, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Read that and think about it. God is always saying that over sinners and Losers and the poor and the broken. And most of the time that's us, if we're honest with ourselves. He's always speaking that. And this is the message of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we've been talking about justification by faith for quite a few verses, the direct and awesome and wonderful and pleasant and sweet and peace and life-giving implication of that is first, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that transforms our experience of things like failure every time. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We said in our study of chapter 4, which is, you know, about Abraham and circumcision. And we said it's so easy to read through Romans 4 and other sections of Romans and be like, well, that doesn't relate to me, right? And we saw last time, well, very much it does, right? And I think Romans 5 is actually a lot like that. As good as it is, I have read through Romans 5 many times and tried to figure out what it means. That doesn't mean I'm such a bad reader. It means that that is kind of sometimes how we read our Bibles. We read it uh, thoughtlessly, maybe, or unimaginatively, or um, we read it without insight. So we're going to pause here and go to prayer. As we remember in Luke 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus who walked with Jesus, they didn't recognize him, they were kept from recognizing him. And it says then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And that is especially what we most need in this passage. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our minds and give us a revelation and an enlightenment of the love of God and the peace with which you, come, you draw near to us. We pray that you would bless your people with peace you would pour out into our hearts the love of God through the Holy Spirit whom you have given us. Amen. What does it mean? Verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. There's like a lot of theological words here. It's so easy to just read these sentences. Let's slow it down. Access. How do you gain access into a room? You go through a. Or let's say you live in an old fashioned you know, nomadic tent, you go through a curtain, all right? So to get access to this grace in which we stand, we've gotta go through a door, we've gotta go through a curtain. I tell you that in the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus was the curtain that was torn in two between the presence of God and the languishing people who were called by his name, but did not do very well at being who they were called to be. Jesus is the veil that was torn through whom we have access into this grace in which we stand. More, Jesus said, I am the door to the sheepfold. If anyone enters by me, amen. He will come in and go out and find pasture. That means everything you need. That means nourishing, tender, young, nutritious grass that the sheep can live and thrive on. That we, the people of God, can receive spiritual nourishment for our souls through passing through the door who is Jesus into the sheepfold and daily come by this way. It's going to God through the gospel day after day. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith, not by being perfected, not by getting it right time and time again, for we, oh, we do not. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So what's the grace in which we stand? Normally we say grace is unmerited or unearned favor, right, that's good. Uh, Oftentimes I think we think the word grace and we just substitute the word mercy. That's cool, that's good, but that's kinda not it. Biblically, here's what grace is. Grace is kindness, freedom, empowerment, and courage, courage to live life. It's relational kindness. If you look up a theological definition of grace, biblically, it'll say something like unmerited failure or, or God's undeserved kindness given to us. Uh, but, but what it is, there's, there's this mercy, and that's like the, that's like the one-two punch of the mercy and the grace. The grace is God's relational kindness. Grace isn't just, I get off the hook for my sins, one, mercy, and I get to heaven, two, grace. That's, it's always relational. The the book of Romans is not primarily theological, it's relational, it's personal. This is a person being kind to you, and you stand, in the kindness of God through Jesus to you, day by day. Failure, success, however you measure success, right? Um, We stand in the personal one-on-one or one-on-many kindness of God that, that fills our relational life with him, right? It is freedom. Grace is freedom. Grace is freedom from being bound to my past in a way that I am chained or I am known by my old names or those old curses or those own old insults or the voices that sometimes talk in the back of my head and tell me you're a whatever and it's bad, right? I am unchained. Grace is freedom from all of that. Grace is freedom from every label. Grace is freedom from things like diagnoses. It's freedom from things like psychological diagnoses that would speak over me identity. I am, um, I have ADD. I have clinical depression. I have, I am an abuser. I am abused. I am whatever. Whatever, whatever diagnosis or term that has value in identifying theologically the tune playing over that that is superimposed sweeter and better and more pleasing to my ears is the tune of grace and grace's personal relational kindness in which we stand with him like we're in the same room with him and it's freedom from that label and I have that in Christ every new day failure success it's the same that's what grace is grace is empowerment it's kindness it's freedom it's empowerment god's grace means i've done that sin a million times and this time i don't have to grace is actual real life power I don't have to. I am not under the fate or the trajectory or the momentum that I have had my whole life up until now. I don't have to say that to my wife. I don't have to get angry. I don't have to accuse you, whoever you might be of whatever. I don't have to sin. I don't have to click on that web page. I don't have to make that call to that person. I, I know I shouldn't make that call, right? I don't have to go to that place late that night. I don't have to. I can just get up and hear the call of God like the disciples by the sea heard it when he said, follow me. And they left their nets. They left their father. They left their boats and they just, like that, I can. The grace of God in which we stand is, I can. And if I don't, the very next chance I get, that time, I can. It's an empowerment that no psychology, no other religion, no no exercise and nutrition and supplement, no, no meditation or a mantra, nothing the world has to offer can give you that freedom like we have and in which we stand in the grace of God. It's personal relational kindness, it's freedom. It's empowerment, you can. That label does not apply to you in the sense that the world thinks it does. Don't agree with that. Maybe it has value for description or whatever, or will help you get to the next step, sure, yeah, whatever. That's not what this passage is about. And this is the music that plays over and is better than that. And because of that, grace is courage. Grace is courage that when I am so utterly broken with despair because of, let's say, failures number one, two, three through one billion, that tends to You know, that lends itself to this crushing burden of discouragement or sense of whatever, or I can't. But grace is courage that when you're there in the trenches, when you're in the foxhole, and nobody is around you, and the explosions that have rocked the front lines as the enemy has fired after, you know, that... Uh, battle mate and that one and maybe they've fled maybe they've uh, maybe they're not with you anymore because they're they're not even living anymore and it's just you when you're alone and the bullets are whizzing over your head and you haven't eaten or slept in days grace is courage the grace in which we stand is courage that now I am in the grace of God personal, relational kindness. Freedom from labels and the trajectory I was on. It's empowerment I can. And it's never me by my own strength, obviously. Citing Romans 1, 1 through 4. And it's courage. That's a biblical definition of grace. Therefore... We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I was talking with Adam Furlow about three or four years ago. I remember where we were when we were walking in front of my house, and uh, you said something like, John, you're an optimist. And I think you were saying I'm kind of pessimistic. You were saying that about yourself. And I think you say to me, John, you're an optimist. And my first thought is, I hope so. That's what the grace of God in which we stand does to us. It, it does, well, I hope so, for everything good, uh, to the neglect and the rejection of everything bad. The, what, what is the stereotypical optimist in society? We think that person's unrealistic. We think that person's a fool. We think that person's just a little kid who doesn't know the tragedies and the realities of the world. I say to you that because of this grace in which we stand, we should be much, 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 much more optimistic about everything in store for us than we can possibly imagine yet. And that is where we are headed. In Josiah's excellent sermon this morning, he cited 2 Corinthians 4, which I'll get to later, but he also cited 2 Corinthians, uh, I can't remember the other chapter, 7 or 9 or whatever. And he talked about Paul's distresses, his beatings uh, in season and out of season, his danger, his burdens, his travails, his labors, and on top of that, his daily anxiety for all of the churches. Since becoming an assistant pastor at uh, of this congregation, I have learned something of what the daily anxieties for the, well, one congregation of the church is, I often am burdened with this sense of, oh Lord, please, please bless, and please be good to, and please be merciful to fill in the blank with every one of your names. And me too, especially. Um, I can't imagine what the daily anxieties for all the churches would be like. That, that seems staggeringly insurmountable. And in light of all these things, he calls it, Puh. Light and momentary troubles. Light afflictions. Paul is an optimist. Be like him. He's your example. Don't be like the pessimist, that's ungodly. So repetitive, it's sin. Adam. <laughs> Why? Why should I be foolishly, recklessly optimistic? in light of how bad whatever could happen, could be, and maybe has been for all these years, like I'm locked into it, and there's no escape except for whatever escape. Because suffering produces endurance. That's the first part. It is God's will that you should be sanctified by suffering. I think the greatest mystery in all of the Bible, and all of theology, in the Christian life, is why on earth would God, who is good and holy, without fault, subject himself to suffering? I think that I will never understand that in the least. But if he did, every time that's not fair, or, ouch, that hurts and that's too much and I can't bear up on that, rises up in me, I will remember he who endured such opposition from sinful men, and I I don't lose heart, though outwardly I may waste away. If Jesus, who didn't deserve it in the least, can, then I can endure. Suffering produces endurance. And that's a good thing, and God knows I need it. And endurance produces character. So what is character? Character is that thing in you that keeps the wheel on the ship, think an old fashioned sailing ship, you got the big wheel. Character is that thing that keeps your hands from moving when, when the wave makes the ship tip, and maybe it's gonna tip over this time. Character is that thing that keeps your hands steady on the wheel when, uh, when the wind comes up at your back and it blows off your hat and, and the rain is pelting the back of your neck so bad it hurts and your hands keep steady. That's character. It's a kind of steadiness. It's not foolish optimism. It's confidence that who God has been will not change because I've seen it before you don't you aren't born with character character comes from repetition i know by repetition that god will not unforgive me or abandon me and that god will not unforgive or abandon you because of my failures and sins or because of yours because i know him in whom i have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him, to him until that day. Amen? Amen. Character is from repetition. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame. That might be said, hope does not disappoint us. Or it might be said, when all is said and done, we're not going to find out we were wrong. Paul said, if Christ is not raised from the dead, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we, Christians, are above all people to be pitied. That's a pretty strong statement. But since Christ has been raised from the dead, since we are justified by faith and not by either successes or by failures or the lack thereof, since we have been justified by faith, We are through him, this curtain who was torn, this door who is open for us to come into the sheepfold and be full members, fully included in this community, without exception, no matter what anybody says or feels about us, or might be thinking about us, or no matter how anybody treated or mistreated us, even in the church. We are not wrong because God was right to create, to allow to fall, to redeem by such a costly price as him giving his own son, as God stepping down from the sweetness and the peace and the glory of glory into this world of hunger and nakedness, of shame, of pain, and suffering. And there's nothing wrong intellectually, logically, or theologically with God doing that. He was very, very right. And that is his righteousness, which in the Bible doesn't just mean meeting the law and being perfect. Righteousness in the Bible implies goodness. And we're about to get to that more in the following verses. Hope does not put us to shame. God was not wrong to die for me. He was so right. And I, am, I will be vindicated and proven right that I have put my hope in him when all the detractors and insulters are one day silenced. Amen. Amen. The whole nation can believe in a different religion and a different philosophy of this age but I will stake everything I have on Christ. And therefore I will be recklessly optimistic that he is able to complete this sanctifying work he has started and to gather us from all nations, us, the rabble, the rabble of the earth, to gather us and to make us truly one even as he is one. That I think is the second greatest mystery in all of theology. How can that be? Yet we know that it will. Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Ephesians one. Because we're like a letter, an old fashioned letter. And there's some wax, you know, like candle wax. It melts and you take your signet ring. It's like putting your signature on something. And, and we're the letter and the Holy Spirit is the seal, The, the the wax was held over, the, the lump of wax was held over the candle and then it was dripped onto the letter and, and, the, and God put, pressed his signature into us by pouring out the Holy Spirit on us. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom God has, who has been given to us. Amen. Amen. Now let's stop and pray again. Because I think that for a few of us, that has not been made very real. And it needs to be, because it will lead to endurance and to hope. Please pray with me. Lord God, you know that for years I didn't believe that you love me. And I know that there are those seated here or listening, or who will listen to this, who barely believe that you love them. And I know that you have poured out your love into my heart through your Holy Spirit whom you have given to me. And I pray that I would know that much, much more and much more often. And I pray that everybody who hears these words read and who hears this prayer, you would fulfill this as their destiny. And that you would cause your love to be poured out into every one of these hearts through your Holy Spirit whom you are giving to them. Amen. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you're highlighting, if you're underlining, write down, Christ died for the ungodly. This is one of those phrases that you, Christian, need to think about hundreds and hundreds of times. It will change everything in your, in your perspective about who God is and about how comfortable you feel with God, so to speak, and in about how you relate with the members of your congregation, your household, with everyone around you. This verse unhinges, undoes, opens a door to you standing and living out the kind of grace in which you have been, uh, have been given access to. Christ died for the ungodly. You need to spend years thinking about that in the presence of God. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. I didn't get the whiteboard up here, so you have to imagine. Imagine with me. Here's a whiteboard I wrote on it. Righteous person, okay? One will scarcely die for a righteous person. What's an example of a righteous person? Goody two-shoes, right? They just haven't made as many mistakes of me, as me, okay? You probably are thinking of somebody already. If you're not, imagine a, a, a ideal person like that, right? This is the goody two-shoes who they've, they've never done that. They've never done this. They've never treated anybody that way. They just haven't, they just haven't made the mistakes I've made. Or maybe you think that of yourself. Who's gonna die for a person like that? Hate a person like that? Be jealous of a person like that? Yeah. Okay. So cross that one out in red. Ert, ert. Nobody's gonna die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. All right. Right next to that, good person. Okay. So what's a good person? If you're thinking theology, you're thinking goodness, righteousness, it's the same. Don't think theology, think how we talk. A good person. If you say, that's a good man, right? You mean that's somebody who would lay down his life for an orphan or whoever, right? It's the person who is like the best heroes that we love in film. The best heroes that we, there are heroes in film. They're the people who succeed. They're the people who, um, who, Defeat the the evil arc enemy there. That's that's admirable and all that But I wouldn't die for one of them Maybe I don't know maybe if you're in the army you'd die for you'd take a bullet for your commanding officer or something because you love them But that's because your commanding officer has been good to you and would do the same for you, right? That's a good person a good person In what it means here in Romans 5, a good person is somebody who would and maybe has taken the hit for you. Some of us would die for a person like that. There are many of you for whom I would die. If you're a parent, um, you would almost certainly die for any one of your children knowing the implications of that, you'd still do it, right? For a good person, one would dare even to die. All right, so circle that. Er, er. Now, write in me, or ungodly. Nobody is going to die for the ungodly. I mean really ungodly. Nobody's going to die for an ungodly person. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You have to memorize Romans 5.8. You have to. Let this be one of those phrases, one of those verses that you think about hundreds of times over the coming years. God shows his love for us. God demonstrates his love for us. God manifests or fleshes out his love for us in a person. This isn't a theological concept. Every theological word that's long in the book of Romans. Every theological concept in the entire book of Romans is personal and he is that person. In Jesus who was torn like a curtain, in Jesus who was pierced for my iniquities, for my very failures, My father's not a bad person. He's a good man. The hardest person in life I've ever had to forgive is my father. I couldn't stand up here and tell you any big sin of my father's in particular. It's just, you know, there's friction in relationships. I think that summarizes it. And there was a lot of friction there. Um, you know, it could have it been bad. I, uh, There there wasn't enough peace in my family. Um, I wish there had been. I hope for something better for my kids and I work for that every day. Um, It was years before I could forgive my dad. And and I remember the day that the most decisive victory in the battle to forgive my dad uh, occurred. I had gone away to college, and I came back home, and I was like, oh, I'm coming home to this. <laughs> I make it sound real bad. Um, and, and I was so mad. I was so mad. I wanted to just get a bat and smash something, and I was this close to doing it. And, and instead, I went to my room, and I imagined, this isn't like advice. I'm not telling you to do this. Um, and I imagined this cross, and... Um, and Jesus lying out on the cross, being stretched out by the Roman soldiers, and as those soldiers took that hammer and pierced him with the nails, I—it was me. The Roman soldiers were me, and Christ was being pierced for the offenses that that were committed in my family. And I was thinking, my father's going free. My father is guiltless and pure and righteous and holy and good because these nails that may have otherwise been directed at him are going into the hands and the feet of Christ. It was, it was magical. I don't know a better word for it. And I have since then uh, put myself in that place and thought, for whatever I just did or whatever I just committed, or I can't believe I even thought that thought. I can believe I thought that thought because the worst of all thoughts will sometimes pop into your mind. Like the worst thoughts that could ever be thought will pop into your head. It's, it's not necessarily your fault. But what's really bad is when you find yourself, even for a moment, agreeing with those thoughts or being pleased to participate in those thoughts and God help us to snap out of that. But in those moments, I have found Christ was pierced for those iniquities, and I've relived that moment I experienced with my father and the Lord Christ being, being pierced for even my sins. God shows his love for us in that, while we were still a righteous person, are we gonna die for a righteous person? Good person? Somebody would perhaps dare for a di- die, even die for a righteous person. Sinner. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, showing himself to be righteous. And by that I mean good. In eternity, when all is said and done, and the book of deeds is open, read, and shut, and all of the religions of this world and the idols are brought nothing. And every, according to this gospel, every secret thought I've ever had, every word uttered in secret is shouted from the rooftop in heaven before the judgment seat of Christ. God will be vindicated and he will be shown to be perfect in the presence of all mankind and every angel and unclean spirit and demon. because of who he has become for us, his sanctified people. All eyes will be on him on that day. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time whoops wrong verse oops didn't write that down Romans 8 29 through 32 for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers, the result of these theological transaction, this sin, justification, salvation, sanctification, glorification. The result, what that looks like in real life isn't theology, it's, it's a family around a table. And there's peace and there's joy and there's bread and there's wine. And nobody's a glutton and nobody is drinking too much. And, and everything that was wrong will be made right. It's family and it's relationship and it's forever. Praise the Lord. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, right under here, under sinners and me, right, enemies. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. By his life the power of Christ who has been raised from the dead and who will never die the power of his life works it's works its way out like like the sun rising until everything that was dark and everything that was part light and part shadow until everything is flooded with this glorious and beautiful noonday light of him who has risen from the dead and who fully shines on all his people in such a way that no one is hidden from his grace. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. In the New Testament, Paul uses this concept of reconciliation um, a number of times. Reconciliation means that to get me reconciled, he took away several things. He took away my sin, he took away my guilt, my guiltiness, my self-accusation, and he, he did away with every accusation of others against me. He took away my sin, my actual sin. He took away my guilt, and he took away my condemnation. That's the wrath of God and the judgment that once but no longer is due me. All of that, the sin and the guilt and the condemnation, are done away with in reconciliation. But here in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul says, we have received reconciliation, through whom we have received reconciliation. How do we receive it? It's not just a theological transaction that happened at the altar call. This is a gift that has to be unwrapped. It's grace, and you've got to open it. How do we receive it? We lay aside our hostility toward God, and we lay aside our accusations against God. Maybe you're a better man than I. Maybe you're a better person than me. Maybe you've never had accusations against God. I have had many. To receive the reconciliation we should, we shall, we will, lay aside our accusations against God. God, you did me wrong. God, that doesn't that wasn't fair. God, how could you deal me these cards? God, how could you give me a child with reactive attachment disorder? God, how could you have me be born into a family where parent A or parent B said those things to me or, or did that to me? How could you have given me um, that wife or that husband? How could you, how could you let me fail? God, you let me down. It's disappointment with God. And every one of us has experienced a little or a lot of that. There's a good book, the theology is okay. But the main point is, is the point that is made so well. It's a book by a guy named Philip Yancey. What's so amazing about grace? His, if you focus on his main point, it's outstanding. I don't think we have time to go on. The rest of Romans 5 uh, verses 12 through 21 are like the book of Romans, easy to read through and not understand. So I'm gonna read the whole chapter in the New Living Translation, which which really makes it clear. But first I'm gonna read a couple other passages that summarize all of chapter five well. Romans chapter 5, the, the goal of it, the last verse of it, um, the last verse is so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So... The end, the result, the destiny of our trajectory in Christ in this grace in which we stand may be summarized in what Josiah quoted this morning in Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. Romans 5 is headed in one direction. It's towards a person. And it's this in Romans sixteen eleven: In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand our pleasures forevermore <clears throat> Titus 2 verses 11 through 14 for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age. This present age is an age of suffering. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Romans chapter 5 in the New Living Translation. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, God has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials when we suffer oh so deeply and daily. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God, friendship, peace, was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. Who would do that for his enemies? We will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. This is especially for those who repeatedly struggle with bad sins. We will certainly be saved through the life of His Son because His life has power that works itself out and gives life and light to all the land. Like when the sun rises, the sun's not going back down and this sun will stay risen forever. And if you've read Revelation, you know those precious verses where they will no longer need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. That's what it's like. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. It's our our destiny, fellow person who fails, fellow sinner. It's our destiny. Nothing and no one can separate us from the love of Christ and no one can stop this. Hear this. So we can now rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God. It's, it's unity, it's life, it's fellowship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ, because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. There's this concept in the Bible that might be called headship or federality or federal headship, and we millennials don't like it, but it's in the Bible and it's best explained, I think, in the New Living Translation rendition of the remaining verses of Romans 5. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, For everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Was it sin? Yes. Was there a line that was crossed? No, no line was drawn, but it was still sin. Still, everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God, as Adam did, Now, Adam is a symbol, a type, a representation, a prophetic foreshadowing of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this one man, Jesus Christ. It's a family tree. It's Adam, Eve, it's everybody was descended from Adam. I, in a sense, I don't care if you believe in special creation and young earth or old earth or evolution or whatever, but you need to believe that Adam was a real person and you need to believe that we were in him as the head of the human race. Okay? And All of us are descended from him, okay? It's a family tree. All of us sinned in him. It's like David says in Psalm 51. Don't forget to do your homework this week. Read Psalm 51 every morning. Read Psalm 139 every evening. Put it in your calendar. Set a reminder. In Psalm 51 it says, In sin my mother conceived me. It doesn't mean his mother was like in an in adulterous relationship or his mother was doing something wrong. What it means is I was bo- fully sinful from the moment, from the conception of my being because I was alive, because Adam represented me. Adam or Adam in Hebrew means what? It means man. So there's a play on word here in this passage. From one man, from one Adam, from one man came sin and the wages of sin is death and all sinned in Adam. Even before you were born, you were under judgment. Think that's not fair? Rethink it. Think that's not fair? Set that thought aside for a moment and think of the beauty of this thought and it is for us music that plays over our doubts and our sense of unfairness. Why would God let me be born in, let all those people be born in sin? Hear the music that plays over it and is sweeter and higher and will never end. Amen. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, here's the family tree, caused death to rule over many. It's like a cone or a triangle. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ, it's an upside-down triangle. It's, it's, uh, it's here's Jesus, and he upholds all who in the future descend from him. He's our foundation. Think of it as an upside-down family tree where Jesus is here, and all of us ascend from him, Right? Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness, his atonement, his justification, his incarnation, his salvation and his ascension, and his eternally living to intercede for us brings peace, brings grace, freedom, empowerment, courage kindness. Brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. Think it's unfair? Well, this one's fine. This one's better. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be arrayed righteous. It's It's like a virus infects one and spreads to everyone else who touches that one. It's highly communicable. Jesus is the one who touches the leper and it's like everybody has leprosy everybody's already diseased and when his finger when his hand reaches out and touches yours when he comes up and bear hugs you spiritually and squeezes you and does not let you go like that song the love of god that will not let me go um, you the leper become cleansed and it spreads to all the family of god from faith to faith from generation to generation. God's law was given so that all people could know how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Praise the Lord. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead. Can you feel the shackles coming off? giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. What shall we say then when we sin? Be gracious with yourself. Amen.